Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks very much for joining me at the podcast today. I just talked with Agnieszka Joniak-Luti about her new book, The Han, China's Diverse Majority. This came out in 2015 with the University of Washington Press. Now, this book has a number of really interesting central arguments um, that help it contribute not just to the study of social anthropology or the study of China, but also to the study of some really important uh, concepts that range much more broadly from these core fields um, outward into many, many different kinds of fields of inquiry. Those are arguments about um, notions of ethnicity, of identity, and much, much more. One central argument of this study also locates this social anthropology study within a broader historical frame. And in the words of the book, that is, different eras have produced different categorical understandings of the Han, as well as different Han nesses, or markers and enactments of the Han identity. So based on um, a bunch of, um, I mean, more than a hundred semi-structured interviews in all kinds of places, what Agnieszka does is she creates a way of thinking and thinking very flexibly about not just what Han identity and Hanness might be, but also how we might think about identity um, and the, the various ways that identity is both fragmented and coherent at the same time, more broadly speaking. So it was really a pleasure to talk with her, um, and I think the book is absolutely a must-read for any of us who work on anything having to do with identity and ethnicity in China, um, as well as uh, well beyond. Thanks very much for listening. Thanks, as ever, for your support of the podcast, and I hope you enjoy. I'm here today with Agnieszka Joniak-Luti to talk about her new book, The Han, China's Diverse Majority. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Agnieszka, and thanks very, very much for both giving us a book that's so thoughtful and relevant to so many different disciplines, and also for generously making time to talk with me about it today. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure. So, Agnieszka, let's start as is traditional for the channel um, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field. What brought you to China and, and what brought you to that as an academic field? Uh, well, I'm coming from I'm coming from regional studies in in uh, in the German speaking or German inf- German academia influenced uh, area. It's called Sinology. So I, I, I my master was in Sinology, and uh, after my master's, I shifted a little bit uh, in terms of disciplines and moved to social anthropology. So I'm coming from regional studies. I have this regional studies background, but then I felt like. I need more in terms of ter- methodology. And so during my PhD, I shifted in the direction of social anthropology. And so the book is a kind of combination of my regional studies background and then the theories and methodologies that I acquired while um, getting into uh, social anthropology. And then China 
it's, um, well, how did I come to China? I don't even know anymore, but I think it was the fascination with the script, with characters. When I was a teenager, I was fascinated by those, by the different uh, uh, scripts that you have in the world. And I remember I was drawing those different scripts. And then I definitely knew it would be, I would study something related to languages, but then studying French or English or Russian, it all seemed a bit too normal. And so I was looking through the catalog of the, the study catalog at my university in Poznan. And there was, there was Sinology or China studies. And I thought, mm, that sounds quite interesting. And I was lucky because it was only every other year that Sinology was offered by the university. And it was precisely in that year that I graduated from my college that it was there. And so I took the examinations and it just, it was just a bingo, really. So uh, this is how I came to China studies. Great. Thank you so much. So the introduction of the book um, talks a little bit about the overall scope and nature of the book. Um, and it mentions that you launched the study with a number of questions in mind. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll name some of these questions and then, um, and then uh, ask another question of you. What mm -hmm. does being Han mean to those classified as Hanzu? What are the narratives of Hanness today? What other collective identities matter to the Hanzu? What are their roles and meanings? How do they relate to one another and to Minzu identity? In what analytical terms can we grasp Minzu and other identity categories predominantly related to home and place? Are they, are they ethnic? Is the Han Minzu an ethnic group? And finally, how can Hanzu seem so united in their Hanness and at the same time be so fragmented and divided? And so as listeners can hopefully gather from this list of questions, mm -hmm. this is a book about Han, about Hanness, about identity, and about a kind of constellation of issues and questions and concepts that emerge from the kinds of issues and questions that I just mentioned. So Agnieszka, how did you come to this particular topic? What brought you to this focus um, for the book? Uh, I think... It was us, the choice of my studies. It was a little bit accidental, but there were some reasons too. And uh, I started to be interested in this topic in the, in the late 1990s. I started actually in ethnic minority studies, but there were so many excellent scholars working in minority studies in the late 1990s in China, especially in the southwestern China, where I also did my fieldwork for the master's, that I felt like I can't really contribute at that point of my career, then I, I could, I wasn't really able to contribute anything substantial to the field of ethnic minority studies anymore. And so uh, I was thinking about where, what would be the possible area where I could say something and where, uh, where not so much has been done yet. And then it occurred to me that perhaps focusing on the Han would be uh, the right way to go. And already during my master's, during the fieldwork for my master, uh, which was set in a multi-ethnic village at the Yunnan-Sichuan border, I, I got interested in the Han living in the village and how they negotiate their Hanness and their, um, their majority stat status in the village where they actually constituted a minority. And so I started from there. I think it's also mentioned in the book that actually this first fieldwork 
in uh, Zhuoshuo in southwest China pointed me a bit in the direction of, yeah, perhaps hand studies, would this be something? And then I decided to uh, continue to follow on that in my dissertation and leave Western China, Southwestern China for a while and move to Eastern China uh, to do the fieldwork. So uh, for the first time in my life, I conducted it for the last time. I conducted fieldwork in urban, in such a, a urban context like Beijing and Shanghai metropolises, uh, huge uh, cities where methodologically you have to use very different tools than when you conduct research in a small village or in a small town like I did later. So there was a lot that was new about, uh, about this new topic and about this new uh, research for me. First of all, methodology. I had to shift from participant observation, which was very important to my previous uh, fieldwork in Southwest China, to a methodology based mainly on semi-structured interviews. <laughs> and then uh, also the topic, yeah, from the focus on ethnic minorities to the focus on the Han majority. And I think it was a great decision because at the same time, a, a couple of other scholars started to um, get um, launched something that is called today critical uh, uh, hand studies. So I think it's a, it's a rising field and there are some very interesting people working on issues that relate to my book. So I think, yeah, I think it was a good decision to shift from Southwest to the East for this project. Great. Now in the introduction, um, you talk a little bit about your methodology and you mentioned the fieldwork in Zhuoshua, and you mentioned the semi-structured interviews in Beijing and Shanghai in uh, 2002 and 2003, I think. Um, mm -hmm. I think so. Now, one of the really fascinating things, at least for me, that you talk about when talking about this methodology is you talk about uh, a method whereby you jointly wrote down answers to your questions during these semi-structured interviews. And it sounds like that was actually a really important um, component of this methodology. So can you talk a little bit about that for us? Uh, yes, yeah, I think uh, I think it's very important to, or this is what I thought back then already, that it's that it's very important to uh, that people you talk to see what you write down. I thought this would um, establish. Hmm, how can you put it? It would. I should. I. I, I was. Um, thinking that I should establish a link between us, like a, a, something that we would work together on with my uh, research participants. And so this paper that was lying between us, it, it was this link on which we worked together. So I was writing in Chinese and then they saw me writing and they were like, oh, no, 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 it's not exactly what I meant. We should perhaps uh, write it uh, differently. And so the, the paper at the end, these four or five pages that we had, or six, it was really a, a joint project. And I thought uh, it's very important. It was for me very important to uh, make it such a such a joint thing, not me coming and taking the words from people and hiding them and taking them with me to Europe to, to publish them in a form of a book, but uh, to create a, a, a framework where we could work together on this, on what is being written down and uh, negotiate what is being written down. And then it, it was, I, f I found uh, ethically, it was uh, more honest than, uh, uh, than making notes that, my informants would never see. Mm -hmm. And so, yes, I'm, I, I thought it was crucial 
to my methodology because, yeah, it created this open situation between me and my research uh, partners. Great. Now, speaking of taking notes and um, this kind of collaborative storytelling that it sounds like was part of the process brings us really nicely into the focus of the first chapter. Now, in the first chapter of the book, you talk about the Han as a historically contingent narration. So this Mm -hmm. idea of the Han as narration is really important here. Can you talk um, about that for us? Yes, this is one of the, I would say, major contributions of this uh, of this book, I argue that every historical period um, created own ideas of Hannes, and it also meant something different to be. To, it meant something different to be Han in these different historical periods, and also, of course, who belonged to the category, who was excluded. It also differed significantly from one historical period to, to the next. So, what I argue is that. Um, we have to uh, pay attention to this. Uh, otherwise, something that is practiced very much in um, Chinese uh, way of reading the Han, namely this kind of teleological evolutionary um, way of seeing how the Han category came into being, will come in place. And I think this is this should be avoided because... The, the Han are really a historic, historically contingent category, and so we have to see them. We have to see this Han in very in different historical periods, uh, more like um, synchro. We have to see them more synchronically than really evolutionary or, di- or diachronically. Mm-hmm. This is the this is what I wanted to say <laughs> by telling by focusing on this uh, historical contingency of the Han. And I also wanted to emphasize that it's not that um, the meaning is invented by some external agencies. It's the Han themselves who create uh, the meaning of what Hanness is. And so that's why I relate to Benedict Anderson's uh, idea of imagined community, because the Han were imagined uh, in very different ways in different historical periods. So we must pay attention to these different uh, imageries and also to the meanings ascribed and to who was included and excluded uh, in order to uh, see Han not as uh, this kind of theologically produced category, but really as a series of uh, moments. Great. Now you talk here um, in this chapter about some of the important differences between pre-modern and modern modes of Han narration. In the pre-modern mode of Han narration, Um, This, like um, the modern mode, is characterized by what you call concurrent coherence and fragmentation. And this Mm -hmm. idea that there is at the same time coherence and fragmentation is a theme that we're going to see thread through the entire Mm -hmm. book. So it's really important. Now, in this pre-modern mode of narration, um, you talk about the importance of Confucianism-influenced imagery, the importance of family names, of cultural and ritual markers. 
And in the modern mode of narration, there's a shift from this kind of culturalism that characterized the pre-modern mode to more of a racialized nationalism. Now, you locate the second half of the 19th century as a really critical point um, in this transformation of Hanness. So can you talk about that? Why is the second half of the 19th century a critical point? Um, What's going on there that for you is important for us to understand? And what's for you... Um, some of the most important aspects of this transformation that moves us from pre-modern to modern. Yes, I think there were a couple of very important processes taking place. One was this um, generalization, generalization of Manchu identity, which uh, was closely linked to how Hannes started to be articulated in the period in this period, more in racial terms, uh, more in nationalist terms, as a community uh, linked to a specific guo or a country. This was uh, one thing. And then, of course, there were uh, important uh, other important processes like the um, disintegration of the imperial power, the rise of nationalism, the rise of evolutionism inspired uh, by um, literature from from the West, and so there were a couple of very important processes that changed completely the thinking of uh, what the Han is, what what is what's the role of this category, what's the meaning of ca- of this category, what function it should play in something like a state, a modern emerging modern state. So there was the shift from imperial power to the notion of state as having boundaries. Uh, and so this all affected the way Hannes was formulated, uh, it was, what attributes it had, and the role that it was expected to play. While during the, uh, yeah, I'm talking about Ming and Qing in my, in my book, predominantly about this part of the imperial period, the role that the Han played in the imperial times was very different from the one that Sun Yat-sen envisaged for the Han to play in the future um, Chinese state. So Hannes had to be reformulated in order to be able to carry these new ideas of nation and state and China as a state in a community, in an international community of nation states. That's right. And and the book actually, in this chapter in particular, um, pays really interesting attention to the work of nationalist interests in, um, in the words of the book, creating the notion of the Han as a racial community to mobilize its resources against foreign invaders. And the chapter exactly, yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really clear here. And the chapter traces what happens under communist rule um, in the sense that it kind of further strengthens, as you put it here in the book, this genealogical mentality, right, and this mm-hmm. link between kinship. And nations. So it's really interesting here for all kinds of reasons. Now, as we move from the first chapter to the second chapter, we move into a chapter that looks at the contemporary. And chapter two focuses on contemporary narratives of Hanness. Now, there are so many interesting things happening in this chapter. I would love to talk with you, honestly, for the rest of our time just about this chapter, but we won't. Um, so in the meantime, for you, um, I mean, you talk about some of the most important markers 
of hotness mm-hmm. that emerge out of your interviews. And there's this really helpful table as well and 48 to 50 or pages, um, mm-hmm. 48 to 50 for listeners. For you, what are some of the most important markers of hotness that came out of these interviews? Uh, well, there are a couple which I thought were very interesting. Uh, um, some, like something that sounds really innocent is the the first one, for instance, that the Han are the largest population and have the widest distribution. It's such a powerful statement, uh, which I, I think discuss also later that it really uh, positions the Han as. Uh, the Minzu of China, so it represents them them as omnipresent and mm-hmm. as as the as the largest population and the omnipre- and people who are uh, who live everywhere all over China. So it has this kind of an inclusive character. And then uh, the the sec- also the the second one that I'm looking at had Han do not have any characteristic or symbols characteristics or symbols. This was mentioned very often by my interviewees who thought that uh, Han are just normal and they do things in an ordinary way. There is nothing special about about the Han. I thought this was also um, this was also this is also crucial to the understanding of the role of the Han category in China. It is very much this kind of invisible category like maleness and whiteness in the West as feminists and uh, racial studies have have shown. In in China, it's the Han who are invisible, as I think it's Stephen Harald who says it, that Han are really invisible in their dustness. They, they seem to be uh, just there uh, without uh, any specific things about them. And of course, this can be, this is an, mm, I don't want to say it's an advantage, but it, it shows that they are really the standard. But on the other hand, it is also a problem of the Han identity, which my interviewees articulated and also other scholars in the field of critical Han studies articulate that Hanness um, appears to be in many situations to the Han themselves really a little bit an empty identity. They, uh, there is... Mm, there is nothing like ethnic minorities uh, with ethnic minorities that you can show, oh, they have a specific dress and they have these dances and they have this special food. You, you really don't, it's difficult to find these things about Han. So uh, this is, this also contributes a little bit to the, um, yeah, this kind of emptiness. I don't really like to use this word because it's not exactly this, but yeah, there is a certain emptiness to this category that, for instance, the movement like the Han clothing that we observe in China since the late 2000s, I think, it tries to attribute some characteristics to the Han. So it invents a, a specific Han clothing uh, uh, for, for the Han so that they also have their specific characteristics like the minorities do. Yeah, so I could comment like this on <laughs> many of those markers. They are just, I thought they were extremely interesting. It was extremely interesting. And for me, during my research, it was important to assume the perspective of my informants. This is perhaps also why the, how the book differs from others in the field of critical hand studies, that it really does not uh, base on historical materials or on statistics or on anything like that, but it, it bases on the uh, semi-structured interviews and assumes the perspective of my research informants. So I always start from 
what they are saying mm-hmm. and to what they see. And from there, I try to uh, to look how it relates to larger uh, political, social or historical processes. That's right. And, and this chapter is really, really rich, right? I mean, I, like I said, we can talk, for, yes. can talk about any of these markers, um, but there's some important kind of central points that the chapter is making that I just kind of want to mark before mm-hmm. asking you to talk about one of them. So Mark, um, no pun intended, because we're talking about markers. So you talk about um, kind of the largest category that constructs the Han in various ways as better than minorities, right? You've already mm-hmm. talked about numerical superiority, this idea of a long history, cultural dominance and a kind Mm -hmm. of character that is, um, as you put it here in the book, hardworking, responsible, modern, and patriotic. (laughs) There's also kind of a shift, an important shift, again, to kind of locate us in this move from the pre-modern to the modern or from the imperial Mm -hmm. to the national. Um, You talk about the importance of certain kinds of markers in imperial China, rituals, patriarchal family structure, family names, descent, agrarian occupations. And there's actually a shift um, that you're identifying um, with that, or that accompanied the rise of nationalism at the 20th century. We see a shift to markers that coalesce around ideas of shared national descent, common ancestors, linear national history and national language, and a political bond between Han Minzu and the Chinese state. And this is really, really clear in the book. Mm -hmm. Um, And you, you tell us here that this signals a shift from imperial culturalism to a nationalist symbolic order. Okay, so this is really interesting, but listeners and readers might wonder, um, how do these narratives get distributed, right? How do people learn to think and talk in these terms? Like, what makes these markers move? And how do these markers permeate into a particular context? And you talk about two related, um, really, really important ways that happens, education and language. Um, This is really important, and this is one of the ways that the book speaks to, I think, a wide range of disciplinary contexts, even beyond Chinese studies, right, and beyond um, contemporary Mm -hmm. understandings of China, including um, studies of linguistics and studies of education. So Mm -hmm. can you talk for us about um, education and language? For you, um, what are some of the most important ways that education and language are shaping the movement and the concretization of these markers? Yes, of course. This was this was the question that I was asking myself uh, when being in Shanghai and Beijing, conducting my interview, and I realized that some of the narratives and statements that my, that my informants made, they were identical to those that I collected in this village of Duosuo in southern China, in southwest China, uh, how many years? Five years uh, earlier. And so this made me think, what is it that... Um, that distributes these narratives even in exact wording uh, throughout China. And I thought education is probably really crucial because at the time when I conducted my village, my fieldwork in Southwest China, in this village, there was uh, no TV or no radio in the village. There was no electricity. So uh, this could not have been, it could have not been that it was the mass media which distributed these um, images and uh, um, the statements uh, around there. Mm-hmm. And so I thought it probably is education. Interestingly, as I think I also write in the book, especially uh, children who attended the Chinese language uh, middle school, 
uh, were really full of those kind of of this kind of evolutionary ideas that Han are more advanced than the minorities, that Han are more clever than, than the minorities, that Han have the um, they formulated powerful culture compared to minorities, and that they were uh, more skilled in technical jobs than minorities, and so on. So I thought uh, education is crucial. And so here we come to a very big problem uh, or a very big issue now in the study, in minority studies, uh, namely the shift to bilingual or even Chinese, uh, totally Chinese language education in minority areas. Uh, this is, of course, th th in this sense, it's not only education, it's also the Han language or the Chinese language through which these narratives uh, become distributed. And so if we shift from uh, whatever, uh, narrow, e, uh, Uyghur, Tibetan education to the Chinese language education, then the narratives um, or the power that distributes the narratives becomes even, even, even stronger. I don't really know how to formulate it, but it's not then only education, it's also the Chinese language that uh, contributes to the even um, greater influence of this kind of evolutionary and Confucianism because these are they are there are different philosophical orders that play into this kind of uh, stratification so this uh, these things get distributed through Han Chinese uh, education uh, even faster or even more efficiently than through the minority language education where uh, vocabulary is not it's not the same it this kind of um, uh, power inequalities which are inscribed in Chinese language uh, in, in terminology that describes the relations between the Han majority and the minorities is absent in the languages used by the ethnic minorities, mm -hmm. of course. So, yeah, these, I think, are the two, uh, the two major tools. Of course, now, because mass media is... Um, is becoming more and more popular even in ethnic minority areas in, in the West, in Tibetan areas and in Xinjiang. Mass media is currently also perhaps the, the third force that distributes this kind of unequal um, imageries throughout China. That's right. Language education in, in a lot of ways can be a, an ideological education, right? An ethical education mm -hmm. and a, all kinds of things can be mm -hmm. transmitted. I'm right now I'm working on a book chapter on an 18th century um, language textbook for bannermen who were learning how to speak mm -hmm. Manchu and just, you know, looking at the way language textbooks convey all kinds of things that we don't um, exactly. necessarily think about, right? That limited to mm -hmm. language. Um, I, it's, I think you're making a really important point here. Mm -hmm. So as we move from this chapter to the <laughs> chapter, yeah. moving right along, um, we move to a chapter that you call Topographies of Identity. This is also really fascinating, and it gets us to one of the most important um, concepts and arguments of the book, or one of um, a number of them. So in the words of the book, um, you make a point here. In a situationally dependent way, Han individuals switch between a number of collective identities, including Minzu and nation, but also, commonly, place-related identities. And that's the words of the book. And this chapter really explores that. It focuses on, in particular, the importance of what you call here 
home place identities. So let's talk about that. Um, Agnieszka, can you talk about for you, what is um, this notion of a home place identity? Um, why is it important and how is home defined for your participants here? Mm-hmm. Yes, this is, of course, a fascinating question for me. This, uh, um, the, the, home, uh, the, the notion of home was uh, crucial to uh, my research. First of all, of course, I, I came with this. If you come from China studies, you have the notion of home place or jiaxiang guxiang as a, as a stable thing. Then you start talking to your research partners or research participants, and they tell you, oh, my home place is here, and then the second home place is there. And then uh, because I have studied in Beijing for four years, it's actually also a home place for me now. And so uh, I realized home place is crucial to how Han identify themselves and identify other Han. But the notion of home place is extremely uh, unstable. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's mobile. It's, uh, the people have so many home places right now. And so uh, some people would say, uh, because I was born in Hunan, so Hunan is my uh, my home place. Others pe- and this is the only home place that I have. And others will say the great majority of my interviewees, they would say, yes, I have one ancestral home place, and then I have my birthplace, which is also in a way my home place, and then. There is the place where I study, and this is uh, my third home place, and I'm going to marry a person from um, Shandong, and this is going to be my home place now. So what I realized, what was crucial, uh, is that home place uh, is, is really an unstable uh, concept, and one has to uh, recognize it because it has a great importance to how we think about um, this kind of attachment to place, attachment to soil uh, in contemporary China. People can't talk constantly about it, but if we don't pay attention to the actual instability of the concept, we might get a very different understanding of what it is that they actually uh, talk about. One of the things that the chapter really highlights, and I just want to, again, mark this because it seems particularly important, um, it highlights the agency of Han mm-hmm. individuals. In exactly, China, yeah. Um, and and you, um, in the words of the book, you talk about this in terms of their selecting, assuming, swapping, or rejecting um, these various kinds of home place identities. So can you speak briefly to this um, issue of agency? Um, for you, what's important for us to understand about that? Uh, yes, I think uh, what is crucial is uh, to understand that places have different value in China. So there is a whole hierarchy of places. And if you come from the from the socially um, or a place that stands high on the social hierarchy, you profit in many ways in, in your uh, social interactions. You might profit. And if you come from those places that are low on this hierarchy, you are disadvantaged and discriminated. So in my research, what uh, the places that uh, clearly occurred as um, as the source of discrimination were uh, Henan, Subei, uh, Inner Mongolia, and Sichuan. So people coming from these regions and provinces, they often try to hide their home place identity and instead assume another home place identity that would be more um, convenient, perhaps, in social interactions. And it, uh, so, so, for instance, people from Henan would assume an identity of Shantung people uh, because 
uh, this would facilitate many things for them, for instance, when uh, when they moved to Beijing. So people said that it was, for instance, easier for them to find an apartment uh, or a place to live. Perhaps apartment is exaggerated. A place to live when they um, said they were from Shantung, then uh, if, they, if they were honest about their home place and would say that they were from Henan. So there is this whole hierarchy of home places in China discrimination related to it and the life of uh, especially the people who are on the move uh, is is really de- determined by by their home place which uh, of course pushes them to manipulate a little bit uh, this area this these different identities assume identities that are more convenient uh, which increase their chances for instance on the marital market or on the job market uh, so this is a fascinating film that uh, follows from what I said, that home place really became, perhaps not even became, it has always perhaps been a really unstable uh, concept. Mm-hmm. Now, the next chapter really explores this um, in interesting ways that I think engage with some of what you've just talked about. Mm-hmm. Chapter four looks at important socionyms or collective identity labels, and stereotypes that your informants used to both identify themselves and to identify others. Now, the analysis here identifies five major differentiation paradigms, as you call it them in the book, mm-hmm. among contemporary Hanzu. And some of them um, you've actually kind of already talked a little bit about, even implicitly. Um, the first major paradigm really speaks to what you were just talking about. Han individuals think of themselves and other Han in terms of regional differentiation. And there's this um, there's this uh, table which lists <laughs> a whole bunch of examples of how people talked about people from different places that include, but are not limited to, nine-head birds of Hubei, burly fellows from Shandong. We've got potato heads. We've got little mosses. <laughs> We've got big mouths and hicks and bumpkins. I mean, there's and I and that does not exhaust all the possibilities. So it's a really interesting archive, actually, of um, socionyms here. There are also differentiation paradigms between urbanity and rurality, mm-hmm. so the urban and the rural, between locals and outsiders or natives and strangers, between mainlanders and Hong Kongese or Taiwanese. And interestingly, and I want to ask you to talk a little bit about this, between the Hakka and all other Han. So mm-hmm. you you incorporate this last or this fifth um, paradigm and then tell us that it's not very common, but it seems important here. So um, can you talk about that a little bit? And what, what you tend, to, what, what you take to be the most important um, of this? And really, if you want to talk about um, what you think is most important about the other paradigms too, feel free. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yes, unfortunately, it, uh, among my research participants, there were not that many Hakka. That's why um, I think it's only, as I, when I see it, uh, right, it's only four people who mentioned that Hakka are just different from any other Han. Uh, so I can't really talk that much about it. But uh, the other, the other paradigms, um, are very, um, or they, they are also spatial. Like before a while I was talking about uh, home place identities, but place actually uh, also in other ways, spatial identities, different spatial identities seem to be crucial to Han, how Han categorize and identify themselves and other Han. Home place is one thing, one, one way to 
differentiate between uh, oneself and the others. But as you said, there are there is also the differentiation between a very important one between uh, locals or natives and then outsiders and migrants. This is a very discriminatory uh, differentiation. Uh, and it's it's extremely powerful. So especially in the, such cities like Beijing and Shanghai, you will find uh, people who say uh, we are from here, and everybody else is um, migrant, is stranger, is is worse than we are. So this is a way to exclude, to kind of protect the resources, protect the identity of Beijing Ren and Shanghai Ren. Uh, from becoming it uh, too broad, be- from beca- from becoming inclusive, too inclusive. So, so um, people who uh, who see themselves as as natives of Beijing and Shanghai try to build boundaries of, around this identity to exclude everybody else, and in this way to protect their uh, their 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 home place, the, the high standing of this home place at this social hierarchies of the Han. And then another very clear differentiation also related to place is this rural-urban differentiation, which is also uh, very discriminatory, like the urban, like the local um, outsider one. Mm-hmm. And here the socionyms and the stereotypes co- connect, collected, which I collected, are uh, really unpleasant. This is these two boundaries between uh, urbanites and ruralites and between locals and strangers, uh, these two boundaries, around these two boundaries, the socionyms and stereotypes that I collected were really the most discriminatory and unpleasant. The other uh, the other differentiation in according to uh, home places, for instance, or this distinction between mainlanders or Han in mainland China and then Taiwanese and Hong Kongese were more uh, equal, I would say. It, it was... The, it, the difference was uh, observed or it was registered that there is a difference, but they were not that uh, obviously discriminatory. Mm-hmm. Great. Thank you so much. Um, so one of the, before we move on to the next chapter, mm-hmm. I'll just kind of, there was a moment in this chapter that I really liked that I think um, is at the same time, it should be self-evident, but it's a really important point to make because it's not always self-evident and it's got much broader relevance than simply um, the case study that you're talking about here, although it also pertains to that, obviously. You say mm-hmm. the North needs the South to become the North, etc. Mm-hmm. right? The self needs the other to become the self, basically. And I just want to mark that again because I think it's a really important point here. Um, and it's got potentially much broader relevance, right? These categories mutually constitute each other Yes, mm-hmm. on both sides. So as we move to chapter five, um, this is the last body chapter before the epilogue. And this is a chapter that returns us to the theme of fragmentation. You say um, here in this chapter that the fragmentation of the Hanzu is substantial and permeating. Mm-hmm. So in order to start to get at that, um, you tell us that every interview that you did was concluded with three questions. And I'll name those questions and then ask you to talk a little bit more mm-hmm. about one of them. First question, do Hanzu all over the country share the same culture? Second question, are all Hanzu inherently alike? Third question, do all people classified as Hanzu have enough in common to form one Minzu? Okay, so this last one um, is really interesting here for all kinds of reasons. You tell us that overwhelmingly, 
The answer to this last question, do all people classified as Hanzu have enough in common to form one Minzu? Overwhelmingly, respondents answered yes. Okay, can you talk about that? Um, what's important about that? And what does this mean? Like, what are the stakes of this for how we understand mm -hmm. what a Minzu is and, and how it relates to conceptions of Hanness? Mm -hmm. Yes, I ask these three questions always at the end of the interviews. And I thought it was very interesting how the, the people I talked to, they admitted, yes, Han are diversified in terms of culture, yes. And this, this was, uh, they didn't have any problems to talk about this kind of diversity or diversity in terms of home places or to say that urban Han and rural Han are different or that the migrants and locals are so different. And But, but then when I asked about the Minzu, then the atmosphere changed and you could see that there is uh, there is a lot at stake. People became aware that politics uh, came into the conversation at this point, and they uh, immediately assumed this kind of uh, attitude, safe attitude, and say, oh no, we are at the end all one minzu. So regional differences, all these other differences that we talked about before, this they are really secondary. What matters is that we are all Han. And so for me, this was fascinating to see this uh, turn from after two or three hours of talking about all these differences and fragmentation and then uh, hierarchization of these identities and discrimination too, and all this power struggles between different regional groups and uh, or, or Han urbanites and, and ruralites. Suddenly there was this uh, step back and uh, saying, no, we are actually, uh, after all, we are all Han. And so in this moment, uh, I think that the state stepped into our conversations and people uh, returned behind the safe, you know, uh, safe, uh, I don't know what, uh, wall or curtain. And they said it's all this differentiation or fragmentation is actually secondary. I don't think so, <laughs> but uh, this is how they formulated it. And of course, it's, a, it's an important statement in terms of um, seeing the role of the state in identity choices and seeing how it influences identity uh, negotiations and how it plays into um, how people formulate their attachments. What I rather think is that in Eastern China, Hannes is really unable to mediate all these social exclusions and the fragmentation, but this doesn't matter. What matters is that uh, my research participants felt that um, when that you have to, um, or that, that there is this important uh, element that you can't forget, which is the state. And the state also has a saying in what we are talking about uh, here. So, yeah, it was, a, it was a, a surprise to me, kind of, because I thought uh, when we talked for so long about this different... Um, these different exclusions and uh, discriminations, people would reflect more about it, about this last question. But it was not the case. The answers came very fast that, uh, no, no, we are, we are all one. <laughs> now let's, um, this actually brings us to one of the big 
questions, right? I mean, like, we're, now we're at almost the end of the interview, but we're coming to one of the questions. That's one of the huge consequential questions here. And here it is. Are Han Minzu and other um, non-Minzu identity categories to which Han are expressing attachment, in the words of the book, ethnic? Mm-hmm. Are these ethnic? Um, and why does it matter one way or another? Can you speak to that? Uh, I think it matters because it would have a potential to uh, contribute something new to the studies of ethnicity. And this is um, so far ethnicity, this concept and methods relate or methodologies relate to this, related to this concept have been used uh, to discuss rather smaller groups. Here we have the Han a population of one point, I think perhaps by now, 1.3 billion people. So uh, in my opinion, uh, thinking about uh, how far is the concept of ethnicity useful to grasp this kind of situation uh, has a potential to expand the notion of ethnicity or to further discuss the notion of ethnicity uh, in general. So this chapter, this last chapter is uh, really meant more as a contribution to ethnicity studies than to Han studies, actually. And there I propose two concepts, which are which are transitory ethnicity. And uh, the second one was what degree of ethnicity, I think. And so I propose that... Um, we can perhaps talk of, of degree of ethnicity. So some identities might be might be more ethnic than others. And I propose this concept in order to save a little bit the concept of ethnicity, which has become so omnipresent uh, recently. I try to uh, m- establish some kind of boundaries around this concept to, uh, to, so that it remains useful, because I think it can be useful in the analysis, like the... the Ethnicity, this kind of identification and boundary making process is different from other identification and boundary making processes. And so what I try to do is establish a little bit boundaries around the concept of ethnicity. And instead of using it uh, everywhere for all sorts of different identifications or identity processes, I try to um, show that um, there is something specific about ethnicity that uh, it's not all, not all identity processes are ethnicity, that ethnicity has something specific to itself, like the belief in common descent, history, shared culture, ancestors, and then this uh, sense of common destiny and the um, continuity, sense of continuity in time, both imagined and actual. So I say there is something specific about ethnicity that we should try to keep, but... Uh, we should not try to make the concept too stiff. And that's why I propose to talk about the degree of ethnicity. So for me, the Han Minzo or Hanzo in relation to other Minzo uh, in China are more ethnic than, for instance, home place identities when they relate to other home place identities. And then the other concept <coughs> of uh, transient ethnicity, uh, which I propose is to show that ethnicity is something situational. So an identity uh, can be ethnic at one time and then at another time not, because as you mentioned earlier, Han switch, Han individuals switch between different identities depending on the context. Sometimes they would emphasize 
a home place identity at another time, uh, an urban identity at yet another time, perhaps a mainlander identity or a Han Minzo identity. And so depending on the context and on the other that they face, they activate different identities. And in this moment of activation, very different identities can transiently become ethnic for organizational and uh, reasons and for the purpose of identification. Great. Thank you so much. Now, um, Thank you. there's also an epilogue to the book that returns us to some of the most important interventions that the book is making into critical Han studies. And you've already talked about, actually, I think one of the, one of the important ones, which is um, that the book, uh, as you mentioned before, is not taking a kind of historical approach to these issues, but is basing it on interviews, right? It's looking at the, the kind of mm-hmm. politics and the, the contemporary practice of this kind of identity. Are there any other ways um, that we haven't talked about that you feel it's important to mention um, in terms of the way the book is contributing to the small but growing field of critical Han studies? Mm. I'm not sure, but I think perhaps it would be uh, important to mention that social anthropology has really a potential to bring something new into critical Han studies. There is this problem, let's say, with how to study the Han. And of course, history is a, is a very good tool to do it. But social anthropology offers this kind of interesting methodologies that would have the potential to expand uh, uh, critical Han studies uh, in a in a different direction, or uh, social anthropology brings this kind of uh, reflection on positionality of the researcher and uh, uh, reflection on what kind of knowledge we generate by our questions and uh, uh, how we analyze this, uh, uh, what we collect, the, the research material that we collect. I think this would be an important input to. Uh, to the critical Han studies where social anthropology is still, yeah, kind of still a marginal discipline. So I would wish more social anthropologists uh, engaging with the Han category, which is, of course, intimidating. It's a a huge methodological uh, problem how to tackle this category. But I think um, we shouldn't be too afraid. We should just do it and then uh, see what problems arise, what methodological issues arise. How can we link these different studies of localized communities with uh, those who talk of broader processes? I think social anthropology would really have could really offer a, a new, interesting perspective on Han studies. Great. So, Agnieszka, we're now at the conclusion of our interview, but of course, there's mm-hmm. a lot of material in the book that we haven't had a chance to talk about. Is there anything in particular um, that we didn't have a chance to talk about, but that you'd like to mention for listeners before we wrap up? Hmm. I actually don't think so. <laughs> okay, great. I'm looking. I'm looking through my notes, but I think we have talked more or less about everything that I noted out as uh, as important about intrahunt hi- hierarchies and the different distinctions, and that Hanness is a resource because of this specific power relations in great ingrained in 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 this top in this uh, ethnonym. I think we really went through. Everything that I <laughs> I, I uh, noted out, I think, yes, thank you. <laughs> so now that the book is out, uh, what's next for you? What are you working on now? What are you currently inspired by? 
Uh, yes, after this, after this research in Eastern China, in uh, fieldwork in Eastern China, in Beijing and Shanghai, I decided it's time for me to move back to Western China. So uh, my current research project is on Xinjiang. I, it's actually already a second project on Xinjiang that I'm, I'm doing. I started this, uh, I started uh, this shift occurred, let's say, from Eastern China back to Western China in 2010. And I focus in Xinjiang, I focus on two things. One thing is Han migration uh, to Xinjiang. I'm very interested in, so this is actually a continuation of critical Han studies. So I'm interested in uh, why Han migrate to Xinjiang, what their motivations are, how they um, adapt to the region, what kind of identities emerge uh, after some decades of living there. You have this very interesting Xinjiang Ren, uh, Xinjiang person identity uh, emerging now. I'm also very interested in how Han establish uh, themselves in the region. There are this, um, how they claim the place for themselves, a place which is, which until uh, some decades ago uh, had almost uh, no Han uh, living there. So this is one part of the project. And then the other thing it's going, the other part of the project is going in the direction of the anthropology of uh, infrastructure. So I'm very much interested in the roads, mm-hmm. road construction, road maintenance, what roads do with the with space along them, what roads do uh, with people who live along them, how people interact with infrastructures, what road, what kind of um, uh, influence roads have on spatial production and on um, what role they play in processes of territory. Um, yes, this, this kind of research questions um, I'm working on now. Great. Well, best of luck with that research. Thank you. Thank you. And thanks for taking time out of that to talk with me today. It's really oh, it was a pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Well, thank you. And congratulations on the book. You've been listening to new books in East Asian Studies. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you next time.